continuing our study in the book of Galatians. This is our 15th week uh, that we've been studying this book of the Bible. We're in chapter 5 today. But I, I recently was targeted with an ad from a news article. You, you, get, you, know, you get online, you get targeted with ads, right? Well, they have me pegged, right, as a preacher. And so they get, I get sent like a lot of church stuff all the time. So I got this article that came up on my Facebook feed, and man, they, they nailed it. The algorithm was right. I, I did want to click on it. it. It was an article that was in the Atlantic, and it was titled this, The Misunderstood Reasons uh, Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. Ah, okay, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, they got me. You know, I want to know. So, when, when, and, the, and you know, then you click on those things, and it's behind a paywall, so you got to Google it and get around the paywall. Okay, I didn't pay for anything, so that's like... Uh, you know, minor victory we get excited about. But anyway, the, the stat in that article that really stung out, uh, stuck out to me, uh, it stung too, that, um, that was a slip. But over the past 25 years, 40 million Americans stopped going to church. Over the past 25 years, 40 million Americans stopped going to church. That's staggering. That's 12% of our population that uh, used to go to church and then they stopped. And so that's pretty defeating. I got a lot of questions when I see a stat like that. And the stats can only tell you so much, but I got a lot of questions. Like, how many of those uh, people who stopped going to church were actually Christians in the first place? I think that's a fair question. How, how many churches shut down as a result of 40 million less people attending them? That's, that's probably another scary stat. How many of those uh, pastors of those churches also no longer go to church at all? How many of those pastors weren't actually believers at all in the first place? I, another fair question. You could start asking a ton of questions when you start going down that rabbit hole. So those stats don't tell you anything, but I think an, a title like that resonates with me, and, and I think it resonates with you because you're a churchgoer, because we all know people who used to go to church, but now they don't. Every one of us in here knows... Uh, People in our lives, in our family, people we work with, that we know at one point in their life, they religiously showed up to church. They never missed, and now they don't. They stopped going. They were sold-out churchgoers. They never missed for years and years. They, they were present all the time. They participated in everything. They served on all the boards and committees, and they, they gave. And then somewhere along the line, something happened, and they just stopped going. Like that passion that was there, wasn't there, it isn't there anymore. They had an unwavering commitment to show up all the time, regardless of the climate of that church. They were, they were there through thick and thin, but then something happened, and it suddenly all ceased in their life. Like, it's, it's difficult to get to the bottom of that. Like, I think that's why the, the, the title of that article really got me, because it was the misunderstood reasons that millions of Americans stopped going to church. Like you think you know, we want to oversimplify the reasons why people stopped going to church, right? Uh, but it's, it's just always more complicated than that. And every situation is so unique and circumstances and scenarios. When you try to track it all down, it becomes all convoluted and, and difficult to follow because everybody's got this different situation at a different church and a different um, set of circumstances surrounding their departure. So it's hard to track down. It's a complicated topic. Even when you talk to people 
who don't go to church now, but they used to, and it used to be something really important to them. Whenever you start, um, you know, having that conversation with them, a lot of times I find that they even have a hard time explaining it. They're really not even sure. Or maybe they even have a hard time accepting it. Like they know they should be in church, but they, they're paralyzed for some reason because something, something happened. So here's why I bring this up. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different than uh, the typical way that I preach because today we're studying a paragraph in Galatians that's nestled in the middle of chapter 5. It's verses 7 through 12. And I think it's a paragraph that's the perfect paragraph for true Christians who stopped going to church to be confronted with, to, to be challenged to meditate upon, to think through. And I would love to preach this sermon to a bunch of Christians who stopped going to church, but they're not here. <laughs> so that's what makes this sermon so weird. If you gave up on church altogether, you wouldn't be here right now, right? You have not given up on the concept of church in your life, or you, you wouldn't be here this morning, right? Uh, but I, I, want to, I want to preach this sermon to people who have given up on the church, but they're not here, so I can't minister to them in that way, in this context at least. But, you know, I think it's still worthwhile to preach this sermon in a church context, because if you're like me, you at least thought about giving up on the church altogether. You're in good company. Maybe you're battling that right now, like you're just ready to throw in the towel. Church, again, it's complex, it's complicated, people are messy, and then you get in the midst of all of that, and sometimes it's just like, you know what, maybe my life would just be easier if I didn't do this altogether. I've had all of those thoughts too, because I'm human, just like you are. But in Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, here's what Paul is doing in that context. He is making this passionate plea to the churches of Galatia. Remember, there's multiple of them. And they've, they've had some false teaching infiltrate their churches. And so Paul's writing this letter to do two things. These Christians have, he's confronting all of that. They have wandered away from Christian beliefs, and they've wandered away from the Christian lifestyle. And so they're frustrated, he's frustrated. It's okay to be frustrated. Everybody's allowed to be frustrated every once in a while. But it's just time to deal with it. It's time to iron it out. Paul's just like, let's just talk about the, the elephant in the room. Let's deal with it. We're going to iron this out. We're going we're gonna to deal with this together as the church. Because that's what we're supposed to do. And so this paragraph, I think, in a supernatural way, though, it can minister to the, to the topic of of Christians who left the church and how to confront them and, and the conversation that needs to be had. There may be a little bit of tough love to this passage of Scripture, but I think, again, it's, it's just this Holy Spirit-inspired summary of stuff that needs said to people who have just been snuffed out, like their, their light's gone out, it's gone dim. And so the goal, I, I, I want to set this disclaimer out there from the beginning, the goal here is not to beat those people down. The goal here is to, to try to, you know, nurture any sort of ember that may be left in their faith to get it back to a flame again. I want to minister to you, and, and maybe this sermon will reach someone who has given up on the church. And so to be clear, today is, is unique. This sermon is unique and somewhat unusual for me because I'm preaching a topical sermon today that just happens to be utilizing the text that is next for us in our uh, series through the book of Galatians. And so our topic is stuff Christians who left the church need to hear. 
And the disclaimer is this paragraph doesn't directly speak to that, but there's a lot of implications and applications we can draw from this, te this text to apply to that very topic. And that's what I'm going to try to do today. So we have six verses we're going to cover, and I did count them this week. Last week I miscounted <laughs> the amount of verses I was preaching, and you all let me know about it immediately. Uh, but six verses, so we're in Galatians chapter 5, 7 through 12. If you have it in front of you, now's a great time to be looking at that because I'm going to read all six of those verses there, starting at verse 7. Here's what Paul says to the Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then here comes my favorite verse. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It's not the most important verse in Galatians, but it's definitely all of our favorites. We'll get to that here in a minute. So today, in my topical sermon over stuff I would want to say to people who have given up on the church, I'm going to ask you seven questions. And I'm probably, at, in this sermon, I'm going to talk to you as if you have given up on the church, just for the sake of making my communication this morning a little easier. I'm going to talk to you as if you have given up on the church. So I'm going to ask you seven questions. If we're going to sit down and talk about why you left the church and, and, and how that's, that's going to be um, the way you live, look, these are the seven questions I want to ask with this text in mind. Here's question number one I want to ask you today since you gave up on the church. I'll say it a little harsher there. Here's, here's question number one. What happened? What happened? It, the, Paul's, Paul's verse there in verse seven, he says, you were running well. Paul loves the race analogy. He uses it in this book and as well as other letters that he wrote in the New Testament. And and, and so he's, he's using it again here, saying, you know, you ran so well. You started off so good. And again, we know so many people like this who don't go to church now, right? They, they started great. So many Christians start great. Out the gate, man, they're running hard. They're in full sprint. They come to church every weekend, and they're on a church high. You know, they, they get involved. They, can't, they couldn't wait to show up. It was, at one point, it was so fresh and so exciting, and it felt so good, and they looked forward to be a, parting, a, a, a part of it. They thought of church as something that was non-negotiable. It was so extremely important to them in their way of life. It was part of their identity. But then something went wrong. What was it? What happened? Something changed all of that. What was it? You need to have an answer for that if you're going to give up on the church. Like people, sometimes it's people exhaustion. That, that's, that's a real thing, right? Sometimes people leave the church because they've been abused Sometimes there's just confusion when it comes to what the Bible teaches, and there's maybe uh, conflict there as a result of that. Sometimes there's, you know, accidents happen. Sometimes people butt heads. Sometimes it's unbelief. Sometimes it's life circumstances or, again, weird scenarios. It's really hard to nail down, but if you left the church, you at least need to know why. If you want to thrive again as a believer, you need to know why. Because Christians who leave the church, they're not thriving. You're not thriving in your faith if you leave the church. That's just a hard truth. And so if you ever want to thrive again, step one, acknowledge what happened that caused that flame to practically go out to the small little ember that's left. What is it? What happened? If you don't nail that down with clarity, you're never going to get out of the spiritual paralysis that you're in that keeps you from going to church. 
Paul asked them in verse 7 also, who hindered you from obeying the truth? I think a lot of times when I'm having these conversations with people who have left the church, it's a who. <laughs> it's, the reason is a who. Someone did something to them. Right? Someone offended you. Someone abused you. Someone bothered you, annoyed you. It's almost always a who. When I have those conversations, it usually comes back to, this happened and this is the person who did it. And that's okay. Like, who, who hindered you? You need to be able to identify it. Maybe that did happen, and you need to just acknowledge it, right? Don't act like it didn't happen. But let me ask you this, when, or let me just say this. When you, when you let the who that caused you to stop going to church, when you let that who stop you from obeying God, that's a bad place to be. Like, you should be much more concerned about disobeying God than not being around a certain person or not getting justice in a cert, certain situation, you got to deal with it. you got to identify it. you got to do something about it. Doing nothing isn't the answer. Not going to church isn't going to help. I talked to a lot of Christians who left the church, and, and, and you know, they, they're getting by. They're hanging on. You know, you'll, but, you're, but again, you're never going to thrive again if you're avoiding the issue that caused you to stop going to church. Abandoning God's church is never the answer to those difficult problems. So, I want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, or, or let me say it this way. Don't, don't think that I'm saying you just need to shove it down and move on. I, I hate those answers, right? I mean, like, a lot of people are just, they, they get to a point and they say, man, you just need to get over it and come back to church. Well, you know what? Some of these situations are really hard to get over. I think you need to acknowledge it, affirm it, identify it, and then you can learn how to cope with it and deal with it in a healthier way spiritually. So rather than letter, letting that person hinder you and your growth before God and hinder you from being a part of the church, you need to just, maybe you just need to say it out loud in the right setting and have that conversation to process with believers so that you can work through that issue in a healthy way. But if you're not present, we can't do that together. If you don't gather as the church in any way, shape, or form, you're never going to be able to process these difficult situations that perhaps persuaded you to leave the church. Let me ask question number two, since we're having this conversation. Do you really believe abandoning the local church is God's will for your life? Oh, that's a hard question, right? Nobody's ever answered yes to that one <laughs> when I've asked it, point blank. Typically, here's the answer that I get. When I ask someone, do you, do you really believe that not participating in the local church, that's God's will for your life? The answer I usually get is, no, no. I, I know it's wrong, but I'm just not there yet. I, I know it's wrong, but this is, just, this is just where I happen to be in life. And you know what? When I hear that response, I'm just kind of like, okay, you know what? All right. I'll let you. You can be there. You can be in that place. It, it takes time sometimes, right? But let me, let me just throw another truth out there from this text in Galatians. When you are convinced to not be a part of the local church, uh, verse 8 says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Like, you know as a believer, all believers instinctively know they need to gather together as the church. We know this because it's a, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired inclination that we have in our hearts, in our souls, 
put there by the Holy Spirit, activated by the Holy Spirit to want to be a part of the local church. So when I sit down with Christians who stop going to church, they know that's true. And when we have the, this, these conversations, I, I typically don't have to bust out the Bible verses that prove the point that we all need to be a part of the local church because they already believe that stuff. Right? They've heard it all. They know it all. They're, they're on board with the New Testament. They're believers. But I think in a lot of cases, they've been wounded to the point in which they've been distracted from seeing their place in the church anymore. They've been wounded to the point in which they're having a hard time seeing how that, seeing their own purpose within the church. And honestly, in the cases of abuse and things like that, that's a really, that's, it's reasonable. It's reasonable. But it's not right. That's the thing. When, when someone says uh, or responds to me like, ah, yeah, I know it's wrong, but it's just where I'm at right now. That's reasonable, but it's not right. So, so when, like when you're running a race and you get injured in that race, we'll just stick with the race analogy since that's how Paul sets this conversation up. When you get injured in a race, like you're running along with a group of people and you break your ankle, for you as an individual, that race is over, right? You're not going to finish that race. You're not going to get back up and run anymore because your ankle's broke. Right, so, so people get wounded in the church and a lot of times it feels like they get left behind and they're not participating in the, in the race. But as the church, it's designed in such a way that when someone gets injured, we're supposed to all stop and help that person back up and carry them along in the race again. You, no, nobody gets left behind. Every man for himself is not a mantra that exists in God's church. And so we need, this is a two-way street here. We all need one another in this because we're all going to break our ankles at times. We're all going to trip and fall and stumble and have injuries from time to time due to all sorts of different various circumstances in our life. And when I trip and fall and stumble, I need to exist in the church and be present in the church in such a way that people notice and that people engage in my life and help carry me when I can't run as well in the race. And when you trip and fall and stumble, we can be there for you too. But if you're not present, nobody's getting carried. Nobody's getting carried. We need to look out for one another in the local church because it's not just about us. Speaking about our dependency on this community, let me ask you question number three. And it's a did you know. This one, it's a little harsh too, but I think it needs asked. Did you know that Christians who stop attending church regularly they cause more Christians to stop attending church regularly. That's just true. It's contagious. Like, again, it's when you decide to stop going to church, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your whole family, and it affects this spiritual family. It's not about just you. But when people stop making church a priority, that's infectious. You know, we as a as a, a culture of Christians, when we see people, you know, dropping church down on the priority list, it becomes more justifiable. Well, everybody else seems to be doing it, so it seems like I could do it too for similar reasons, right? It's just a contagious way uh, of living, and it's, it's bad in that sense. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says, and that's an illustration he uses several times in the New Testament as well. I'm not a professional baker, but I know it just takes a little bit of yeast in the dough to cause the whole dough to rise and turn into a loaf of bread, right? It just takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. Now, when that illustration is used by Paul, he's pointing out false teaching. He's pointing out evil that harms God's church specifically. But when Christians 
decide to abandon the church, they're promoting a mindset amongst the, the, the church universal. They're promoting a mindset that says it's okay to do that, maybe seasonally at least. And some Christians, you know, when they do this, again, they're, they're, they're preaching a heresy with their actions. You know, by not being there, not, by not prioritizing it, they're, they're becoming that little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. And, you know, a lot of times those Christians will even leave a church because of bad doctrine or bad teaching at the church that they're at. And that's right and good. There are a lot of good reasons to leave a church a lot of solid, good, appropriate reasons to leave a church. But we don't want to leave God's church altogether. We need as believers to participate in this local church. And when we decide not to, we're, we're, we're preaching a different heresy, right? That it's okay to not be a part of the local church. In other words, Christians who decide to abandon God's church, they're a walking contradiction functionally. They become the leaven that they hate or say they hate. Now, you might be offended. I've been on offense a little here, right? But uh, let's keep this conversation going. Here's the fourth question I want to ask you since you left the church. Is the direction you're headed right now, is it informed by God or is it informed by your feelings? Oh, man, that one's a hard one to sort out right there. That's a tough question to sort out. We're having real talk now, right? I, and again, I don't want these questions and these points to come across too harsh. I don't want them to sound insensitive. But we all know that when we're feeling hurt, when emotions are high, do you think more clearly or less clearly in those moments, right? That's reasonable, right? When emotions are high, it's, it's easy to forget uh, truth. Paul says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Now, Paul's not talking about just his view. Remember, he's one of many apostles who teach with the authority given to them by Jesus to be uh, gospel preachers. And so the way that they sorted out doctrine and uh, contradictions and, and conflicts in their day is the same thing we do in our day. There's all sorts of conflicting ideas about the Christian faith out there. How do we sort through it all? Well, we use God's word. We use the apostle-approved information to sort through and determine what's bad teaching and what's good teaching. And so Paul's saying to them, hey, I, hope, I have confidence that you, you as a Christian are going to side on the side of the Bible, right? You're going to side on the side of the teaching of the apostles of Jesus, his argument in the book of Galatians, it's a scriptural argument in and of itself. It is Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, but my point is that he, even in his letter, uses moment after moment of the Old Testament to prove his points in his letter to the Galatians. And so he's using the Word of God. It's saturated with the Word of God, and it is the Word of God. And he's saying, I'm confident that in the Lord that you will take no other view than this. So this is... Like, when, when, you're, when you're deciding you're going to leave the church altogether in your life, like, if you have to set your Bible aside to justify why you're doing that, shouldn't that be a red flag to you? That should be a major red flag. Your situation is no doubt unique. Your circumstance is, 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 is special. 
but it's the Bible that equips us for every single good work in our lives. It, it equips us to live this life. And so when we gather as a church, we gather intentionally around this truth of God because that's how we can achieve unity in the church. If we don't do that, and churches that decide not to do that, they're promoting divisiveness. We want to promote unity within a body of believers, and so we want to elevate God's truth, and we use that to sort through our emotions. You know, sometimes I think we get carried away with our emotions to where we elevate them. Even in the worship experience, we elevate our emotions over and above the Word of God, and that's where churches can go off the rails. So I think a lot of Christians that do this, though, that start to justify things without their Bibles and get really emotional in their decisions, I mean, it, it has a domino effect. Right? I mean, if you, if you decide you can justify one thing that the Bible says is wrong, then what stops you from doing that again? Right? And, and then, tink, 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 you know, the dominoes start falling. Pretty soon, other doctrines in the church that you know to be true or once knew to be true, suddenly they become negotiable too. And it, it becomes like this. When you stop going to church, it can feel like the, pulling the thread on the sweater that eventually unravels the entire sweater. So we have to be so careful that, with that, with our emotions. But I mean, dealing with our emotions, I don't want to act like that's easy. I don't want to downplay that, like just say, hey, stop being emotional. You men haven't ever said that to your wife, have you? Like, oh, you're going to get smacked? You don't say that to you. Don't say that out loud. Don't even think it. I don't think that. <laughs> we all get emotional sometimes, right? I don't want to downplay our emotions, though. Emotions are real. They're raw. And especially in the cases of abuse, man. Those emotions are so justified. And you know what makes me real mad? Is when something bad happens in the church, when abuse happens, and then a church sweeps it under the rug and acts like it never happened. Or we move on so hard and so fast in, under the guise of, of forgiveness rhetoric that we, we just steamroll people who have been abused in so many different ways. Emotions to circumstances that are bad in the church are valid and they should be expressed. They need to be expressed. So, so many times they're justifiable and, and, and so appropriate. I've been so upset in my life. Some, some of the moments in my life in which I've been the most outraged are situations that took place in the local church. So when I was 22, I got my first job, full-time job, as a youth pastor. And from the age of 22 to 32, I was a youth pastor at two different Baptist churches. And in those Baptist churches, uh, we, we, uh, Amanda and I ministered for years and years and, uh, to teenagers. And in both of those situations, I was replaced by a, a, another youth pastor when I left uh, and resigned from that job and went on to the next. And in both of those circumstances, I was replaced by youth pastors who eventually went to jail because of sexual sin against teenage girls. We can't act like that didn't happen. Sweeping that under the rug and not talking about that ever again, that's not going to help the church. That's definitely not going to help the victims. But in each of those situations, I mean, I saw red like I've never seen it before. Just outrage. I, I mean, it, it, it was repulsive to me, and that, that anger was justifiable. And I think, and this happens in so many different situations. In both of those situations, there would exist a faction of Christians, though it be small, it existed and it happened, 
that they would, they would like trumpet this message of, hey, we just need to forgive and forget like God. Hey, we just need to forgive and, and move on. Don't be, don't be judgmental. We just need to forgive. And, and what they were really saying, to the, they were saying to people who were outraged by that, those injustices, they were saying to those people, hush, shh, be quiet. We don't want to make the church look bad. You ever say to somebody when they're outraged, hey, calm down. How's that work for you? Right? <laughs> right? When you're mad and someone tells you to calm down, does it not just have the opposite effect of that? Don't you tell me to calm down. Right? When, so when, when I start to hear this forgiveness rhetoric prematurely in a, in a situation of abuse within the church, that fills me with more outrage. Now I'm really mad. I went from red to like deep red. Like it blurs the line of what, Forgiveness is even supposed to be, and it shames people who are rightfully outraged, and it, it minimizes the trauma that those victims have to endure now. And it, I mean, these people that say outrage has no place in the church, they are wrong. They're wrong. Verse 12, my favorite verse, it's not the best verse in Galatians, but it is my favorite. How's this for outrage? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul's mad. He is mad about this false teaching regarding circumcision. He is outraged for the right reason. He's expressing that rage. He's not having it. He's not going to say, oh, hey just, hey, just forgive those people that are teaching you false doctrines that oppose the gospel. Just forgive and move on. No, he's calling a spade a spade because truth is truth. So, I mean, Christians who prematurely jump to this rhetoric of forgiveness, I think sometimes they do it again because, sometimes I think they do it because they're virtue signaling, but I think sometimes they do it because they don't want to send this message to the world that, that the church is abandoning a sinner, even if they're a child molester. Well, yeah, that's true, but you know what? They're not on the top of my list you know, I mean, if anything, let, let's get them in jail first, and then we can talk about reaching that lost sheep. Let's get justice first. We can pray for their soul the entire time, but let's minister to them in jail. That's what some of our people are doing right here in the next couple of weeks, doing prison ministry. We're not abandoning them, but hey, let me just tell you, if you're part of the local church and you molest a kid, you abandon the church. We didn't abandon you. So our first concern is the victim in that situation. And the reason a lot of people aren't in church right now is because a lot of those 40 million people who left the church are victims who got overlooked and minimized. And they're, they're traumatized. I don't like that. I don't like that a lot of that percentage is, is comprised of people who were abused by people in positions of authority in the church. I hate that, but it's true. I can hate it all I want, but it's true, and it needs to be said out loud. We need to affirm that outrage. That's a, that's a righteous justice. In many, many, many situations of abuse in the church that we continuously seem to read about, Christian abusers oftentimes, they're shielded from, critic, from criticism by their followers. They're seemingly immune to accountability. And when they're shielded by their followers in that way, it enables them and carries them along to commit, commit another offense all over again. And again, lots, a lot of times it's that faulty forgiveness rhetoric that enables them to do it. 
all while the, the Christian victims are forgotten and encouraged to keep it down and, you know, move on so the church doesn't look bad. That is wrong. That's why a lot of people that haven't returned to church yet. So we need to acknowledge that. We need to affirm that. But if we truly uh, want to see these people return, we've got to remind them of truth. Now, I've been hurt in church. You know, like church hurt, people say, I got church hurt. Well, yeah. I'm a pastor, dude. I know all about church hurt. Man, there's, there's pastor hurt too. <laughs> it, can, it can be rough. I could share a lot of stories. I've been beat up, chewed up, spit out, like a lot of times by a lot of people. It's just part of it. It is. But at the end of the day, let me ask this question. At the end of the day, here's question number five. Regardless of the justice I may or may not receive, do I believe vengeance is mine or do I believe vengeance is the Lord's? There's a question you need to ask yourself since you left the church. If you refuse to participate in the church until every wrong against you is made right, you are asking us, you are putting a burden on the body of Christ that like, we, we just can't bear it. We can't bear it. We can't, we can't make all the wrongs right again. Jesus will, has in a sense, and, and will make all the wrongs right, right? But we can't do that. If you're waiting for all of the wrongs to be made right again before you come back to church, you're going to remain in disobedience. Like Paul shared this hope that carried him along when there were injustices towards him. And it's in verse 10. He says, to the one who is troubling you, I'm sorry, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's like, I'm not going to quit on the church, even though sometimes there's pain here, because I don't have to get that justice. God will get that justice. God's going to have the final say. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most philosophical book this, books that's ever been written, and, and one that has just ministered to me specifically in so many ways, one of my favorite seasons of the church was going through the book of Ecclesiastes. But there's this moment in the book of Ecclesiastes in which the preacher, the author of that book, he's complaining about how he goes to a place where there should be righteousness and there's wickedness. He shows up over here to this place where there should be righteousness, but there's wickedness again. And he's frustrated, and it's like, oh man, that, that so resonates with me, because that's, that's how under the sun justice feels a lot of times. You go to a church, or you go to a courthouse where there should be justice every single time, but when you show up there, you find that there's wickedness there a lot of times. And he complains, he said, I said in my heart, God will, God, I'm sorry, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Vengeance is the Lord's ultimately. Jesus gets way more harsh than that. He's like, hey, if you're one of these people that causes the church to scatter rather than gather, you'd be better off to have a great millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depth of the sea than prevent someone to come to me. So Jesus took it real serious. So but, but, but faith in God's justice it is expressed by the gathering of the church. We don't want to punish the church with our absence. We want to gather here and have a hope in, in the God of justice who will get perfect justice for us. We can't achieve it. Even when we do achieve it under the sun, 
it doesn't taste as good as what we hoped. But God will achieve it perfectly. Let me ask you question number six here. It's a hard one too. But since you left the church, I just want to ask it to you. Would you be willing to be a part of the local church again, even if you knew it was going to be really hard work? You didn't think it'd be easy, right? If you're waiting on the easy way to be a part of the local church again, there's just not an easy way. You know, Paul complains in verse 11, and it's a hard verse to unpack. Since I'm preaching a little differently, I'm not going to do that as much today. But it says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In, the case of the, in, the case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, again, I'm not going to unpack that verse entirely. And if you want to have that conversation, come down after the service, and I'd love to talk through it with you. But here's the point I want to draw out, the obvious implication and application of that text. He's saying when you stand for truth and when you unite in truth, it will come with persecution. And it's not going to just come from people who are not believers. That certainly did happen in the life of Paul when you read the Acts of the Apostles, that book of the Bible. But he is speaking specifically of persecution from within the church. There were false teachers in the churches in Galatia that rose up amongst the believers and started teaching false doctrines, and then they were persecuting the truth-tellers, the people who sided with the apostles. And so when you're a part of the church, there's going to be pain. Even Paul had pain. That's a defeating truth. But sometimes when you stand on the side of truth, even within the church, you're going to butt heads with other Christians because it's complex. It's full of people who are all on this journey of faith, and we're all at different points in that journey, and yet we're all coming together collectively to rally around the truth of God and the, and the honor and glory of God at the same time. Managing all of that is complicated stuff. But remember this. This gathering, this group of people that is God's church, that's who Jesus died for. If you're going to be someone who's going to take up your cross and follow Jesus as he commands, then you're going to care about the things that he cares about. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. It means... I'm going to take the value system that Christ has and, and puts on display in his life, and I'm going to make that value system my value system. I'm going to value the things that he values, and I'm going to listen to his preaching and teaching and, and listen to the teaching of his certified apostles in Scripture. And if we don't do this, right, if we don't do this, we're not consistent. There's no consistency in believing you are in tune with Christ's values and not being passionate about the church that he died for. Those are his people. This is the body of Christ. This is why we're a family, and family doesn't give up on one another, ever. We're related by, we're blood. We're, we're, we are blood relatives because it's the blood of Christ that unites us. It's a deeper sense of connection, even with our, you know, flesh and blood, blood relatives, right? Jesus taught that too. We care about this gathering and these people like family, and family doesn't give up on one another. And when family gets abused, we rally around and protect that family member and pick them up and carry them along and defend them. And we love them no matter what. This is what it means to be a part of the church. It's hard work, just like real family. I want to close with question number seven, and I'm not going to answer it. 
It's for you. I'll ask it and then we'll pray. Question number seven says, asks, would you join us and sacrificially love his people once again? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this group of believers and I thank you for your grace that unites us. Lord, we want to love your church because you sent your son to die for your church. You value your church and we want to value it too. But Lord, sometimes we fail to love the body of Christ like we should. We fail to rally around people like we should. We fail to get justice in the ways that we should. We fail to just acknowledge wrongdoing to save face as if we're perfect or something. What a terrible message to send to the world. Father, forgive us of that. Help us to repent as a church. Grant us that repentance, Lord, that we can nurture those embers that are often scattered as a result of being a part of the church. Help us to find those embers and to fan those embers back into a flame. Nurture them, Lord, in a way that would make much of you. Lord, we, we ask that you, the Holy Spirit, would empower us to see those embers as we live our life, as so many people are just in a season of departure. But Lord, if they are really of you, they will come back. And by your grace, we can be a part of that return. Lord, thank you for your word that inspires us, that instructs us. And Lord, help us to humbly be in tune with it and live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.